You are listening to the Alligator Podcast, a podcast where the independent Florida Alligator, one of the largest student newspapers in the country, discusses our latest stories on the University of Florida, Gainesville, and beyond. Subscribe and tune in weekly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud to hear our latest episodes on news, sports, and much more. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Alligator, as well as find all of our latest stories at alligator.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Alligator Podcast. My name is Thomas Holton. I hope you're doing well wherever you're listening from. This is the news section of the podcast. Today we have a very special guest. You can go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, what's going on? Uh, my name is Declan Walsh. I'm a staff writer for the Independent Florida Alligator. Most of my coverage is sports oriented, but I've done more kind of election stuff recently. And, you know, I guess just this past week, I wrote an article talking about the popular vote movements and how it might impact Floridian politics. Yeah. And thank you again, Declan, for coming on. So just to start off, like you said, you're primarily in sports. So how did you go about, I don't know if you'd call it a pivot, but just what made you interested specifically about this popular vote movement and made you want to write a longer feature almost story about that particular topic? I mean, I think sports and politics have a pretty natural intersection. I think, I mean, I've always been pretty politically engaged. You know, I, I, I think, you know, everything's somewhat political, but sports especially, there's always kind of protests or movements that are going on. I mean, you know, the get out to vote campaigns are pretty much everywhere in the uh, in sports. So you're always kind of reminded of it. But I think the thing that made me most, most interested in the movements was moving from New Jersey. Because in New Jersey, your vote doesn't really matter at a national level. You know, New Jersey's going blue. It's going to go to the, whoever the Democratic nominee is. So no one really cares about voting. There's not, not a lot of advertisements going on. And it's kind of just a non-event. But when I got down to Florida, the first question everybody asked is, did you register? Did you change your vote? So I just, I was kind of struck by how odd it is. Geography can have such a massive impact on how you vote and how much your vote counts. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember growing up, even when I didn't really understand what politics was, every election cycle, the political ads and just like the fervor, even as a kid, it just seemed like, all right, this is this is how it is everywhere, which is kind of a part of the article is talking about how Florida is such like a battleground state, like it's such a important decider every year. It's interesting to see how where you grow up, it can like insulate you sort of like with me, it made it seem politics was the most important thing. Whereas in New Jersey, you can, there's not a lot of engagement, like you said, around this time. So, right. Yeah. And I think part of that too is I think Florida, I think people don't quite understand how exceptional Florida is in terms of how rigorous the campaign cycle is here. I mentioned this in the article, but if you look at the, the 2016 campaign spending by state, it was 130 million in Florida, then 70 million in Ohio, and then no other state even got close. So Florida pretty much laps every other state in terms of campaign setting. It's, it's really night and day just because, of I mean, it's the third most popular state and it's on a nice edge every year. Like you really never know how it's going to turn. So, uh, you know, grow, it, growing up in Florida gives you a completely different relationship with politics than pretty much anywhere else in the country. Definitely. And so I feel like every election cycle, the, the debate around the Electoral College comes up again. People are for it, against it. So what's specifically interesting to you about the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact and just this movement in relation to what's going on now? 
Right. So, I mean, the Electoral College has been deeply unpopular for, for a long, long time now. I mean, Pew Research has pulled going back to like the 60s and the 70s, showing that a strong majority of Americans didn't like it. And Nixon got a bill through the House of Representatives, actually, to uh, repeal, to make an amendment, getting rid of the Electoral College. But what's happened recently has become very partisan. So it wasn't really a partisanship issue. In the 60s and 70s, it was more of a, a government control versus like states' rights kind of thing, which didn't necessarily bear out across party lines. But in the year 2000, which I'm sure most Floridians are familiar with, and in 2016, the loser of the popular vote managed to win the election. And in both those instances, the incoming president was Republican. The, winner, the winning president was Republican. So that's kind of created a scenario where it's hard to imagine a constitutional amendment because of how partisan it is. So, you know, if you look at the states that support the, the popular vote movement, it's not uh, big states and small states like you might expect. It's Democrat states and Republican states. But, but just by the logistics of trying to get a constitutional amendment through, you would need two-thirds support both chambers of the Congress, and you'd also need a 75% of the states to, to sign on to it. So with how partisan it is, it's just not feasible having 75% of, the, of American states vote against the Electoral College. So what the folks in my article is, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, it, it's kind of a, a workaround. It says, you know, how can we effectively implement a popular vote system without getting the required support to make an amendment? And so what it does is it understands that if, if there's 270 votes in the Electoral College, you control the election. That's, that's the number you need to win and affect, you know, your will on who the president is. So the compact states that signing members, once the total number of members in the compact reaches 270 votes, uh, they will vote for the winner of the popular vote. So this ensures that whoever wins the popular vote has controlling share of the Electoral College and, and means that the winner of the popular vote will win the Electoral College. So do you know like the timeline of, so I think in the article it mentions like 15, was it 15 states and then Washington, D.C.? have already like signed on is was that the terminology right, right. you so use I, I mean i looked at it more in terms of number of electoral votes um okay. because you, you know the, the, the number of states isn't as important but you you're looking at how close are they to 270 so 196 states have ratified the compact and there are i believe eight other states in which it is passed through one chamber of their uh, state government. So currently, if all those of all the states in which it is passed through one chamber were to ratify the the compact, they would they would surpass two seventy. So it's not quite there yet, but it's something that's a, a lot closer to happening than I think it gets credit for in kind of media and general uh, political coverage. Yeah, and then you mentioned that certain uh, groups in Florida are pushing for that. So how is it like specifically? relevant to florida other than the fact right. that it's like a battleground you know stable well, yeah. yeah so i i'd say generally there aren't a lot of grassroots uh organizations there are a few but a lot of them are are national chapters with specific uh branches in florida but you know for for local organizing groups in florida the national popular vote would not be good for them because Florida gets kind of a disproportionate amount of attention currently under the system, under the uh, current electoral system. 
and that it would probably not receive. So there aren't a ton of local groups advocating for it, but how it would affect Florida specifically is that especially in the North Florida kind of Gainesville, Tallahassee, Panhandle areas, you would see a lot less interaction with kind of national, the, the presidential candidates themselves, and you'd probably interact more with your local parties and local organizers. Because, you know, if you look at where they've stopped recently, you know, Pence was in the villages not too long ago. Trump was in Sanford and he was in Ocala. So these are areas, I mean, particularly Ocala and the villages, they don't really make sense from population distribution standpoint. They're not terribly dense. But Trump's reason for going there is that he understands how close Florida is as an election. And he knows that a glut of voters in any part of the state could sway that election. And with the Electoral College being a, kind of a winner-take-all system, you know, a couple thousand votes could give you, give you Florida. That, that's that's yeah. all it might take. But for, in, the, uh, in, in a popular vote, they would likely target the, the urban areas. And you know, F- Southern Florida has some of the most dense urban settlements in, 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 the, in the country. Like Miami is one of the largest metro areas in the country. So they're not going to ignore Florida completely, but they're going to go where the people are. And the people are in South Florida and, you know, up to Central Florida, Tampa and, my, and uh, Orlando and stuff. But North Florida, uh, you know, especially once you get farther west out into the Panhandle, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, resources are finite and you're not going to go on a, you're not going to want to spend a lot of time where there just aren't a lot of people living where you might now. So you talked to a lot of different professors about this whole movement, and you got obviously both sides. So what what were some things that stood out to you that maybe you hadn't considered or whether it's roadblocks or like objections people would have towards this system being in place or just what is your take from like talking to a, a, like a wide array of professors on just how this is looking for the future? I mean, it's something that would, it's very much at the whims of the political system currently. And, and, and because it's so partisan and it's so kind of, I would say extrajudicial, but it's not going the kind of typical constitutional route, you would need a pretty strong democratic majority in most chambers of government for this to, uh, to pass. So there are a couple of pitfalls, or not pitfalls, but kind of legal challenges. The first would be the compact clause. So the compact clause, I believe it's article 10 of the constitution. It says that states that make treaties that affect the political rights of other states or non, non-consenting states have to be approved by the United States Congress. And again, with how partisan the, the, the bill is, you more than likely need a Republican, I mean, a Democratic House and Senate for that to get passed. But this is certainly possible. I mean, you know, 538 polling looks like it's going to be the case that there's a the democrats control both houses this coming year so it just kind of matters when you reach that 270 threshold if it lines up well with the the democratic and republican swings of balance in the courts and in the uh, in congress and i guess the other thing you'd probably need is it would probably take some court packing from the democrats because i from my conversations with these uh, these professors they, they saw it difficult to see a scenario in which a six to three Republican majority would not declare it unconstitutional. 
which I mean, there are argument, there are legitimate arguments for that. But you know, there are murmurings in the Democratic Party that they might pack the courts. And if this were to happen, you know, given how partisan the the issue is, there's there's a there's a possibility that they might rule in in favor of this issue. So, given that it's so subject to who has control of the House and Senate, do you see a situation where it goes? back and forth a little bit over a bunch of years and election cycles. I right, feel like, yeah, yeah, th- yeah. yeah. No, no that, that's exactly right. Um, and I spoke to Brian Gaines. He's the policy professor at Illinois. And his general sentiment was, this is going to be an everlasting fight. Um, you know, he, he kind of asserted that there are a lot of people who support the, the compact that think that once they get the 270 votes, they're done, their work is over. But he, he sees it more as a kind of ever going, an ongoing fight where people, it's good for an election cycle. It might not be there for election cycle. But I, I think there's going to be a lot of that generally in, in American politics. You know, I, I think to go back to the core packing issue, I think, you know, you know, Democrats have talked about bringing it up to 11 or 15. Ted Cruz mentioned that he would, he would expand the court in return. So I, I think the, these kind of fluctuations. Um, these kind of significant fluctuations based on uh, political power are, are are becoming more regular, but it's also difficult to project. You know, you know the reason it's so partisan is because Republicans are really dominant in rural areas, so their vote is overrepresented by the Montanas and the Wyomings of the world. But it's difficult to say what the demographics of parties will look like twenty years down the line. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility for a massive demographic switch. You know, with new immigrant groups coming in, with changing demographics, you know, parties might change their message, appeal to different people, and then the the partisanship of the issue might change. It's difficult to, to project that it would just go back and forth forever because of how important demographics are to this kind of issue. Yeah. So if, even if this going back and forth based on partisan topics happens, before that, like how soon... Is it just any time before the 2024 election? If this, is there like a deadline or not, not a deadline, but not because there wouldn't be an official deadline, but it could affect the 2024 election potentially. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. I mean, as soon as the, the total number of states that have signed on surpassed 270 electoral votes, the compact compact's immediately triggered. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So I guess, the, I guess at that point, the only thing that would prevent the compact from going into, into places if a state dropped out which they, they can do. It's not binding. But yeah, as soon as there's 270 states that signed on, 270 votes that signed on, it, it immediately goes to effect. So however soon that could happen, it, it would, would be when that go, goes ahead. Yeah. And so the mix of states that have already signed on, you said those were both Democrat and Republican? or uh, No, yeah, they're all pretty overwhelmingly Democrat. Oh, my bad. I misheard you. No, no, no worries. And that's kind of what surprises people. Like New Hampshire, for example, is one of the states that signed on. But optically, you know, New Hampshire wouldn't look like a state that would be interested in abolishing the Electoral College. It gets three votes, which is more than it should have for how small it is. And it gets a lot of attention um, because it's, it's not one of the major battleground states, but it, it, go, it goes back and forth and it's pretty close. But the reason they're on board is because they have Democratic lawmakers right now at the state level and it, it's a partisan issue so they they're they're in lockstep with kind of abolishing the electoral college and you know instituting popular vote like much of the democratic uh constituency is 
So it, it's a mix of big and small states, which is kind of surprising if you just look at it on the surface. But I, I mean, there are some Republican states that have considered it, but almost all the states that have ratified it are, are Democratic states. Is there something inherent to the Electoral College that, because like you said, the, they have the 2000 election and the 2016 election, where both the Republican candidate was the beneficiary of the Electoral College system. Is there anything inherent to the system, do you know, that makes it so that that the Republican Party would be favored? Could, like, let's say if the, the inverse happened, like if a Democratic candidate was like the benefit, like lost the popular vote, but won the Electoral College, like, do you right. think that would affect any of the partisan nature? It's become more partisan, like you said, after these two of our last three presidents have been decided through this. I mean, just logistically, I, I, it would be really hard to imagine a scenario in which a Democrat could lose the popular vote and win the Electoral College uh, just because of how their support is laid out demographically. Like the largest cities are, you know, in, in pretty solidly blue states. So and if you look at like, you know, Clinton was three, two and a half, three points up in the popular vote. And, and Biden is, you know, 538 has him up eight, nine points on average, but there's still a concern over how other he's entirely going to win the electoral college just because of how the, the system over represents rural voters. That's where you, you kind of have to, you like urban states versus rural states is, is what causes this discrepancy. And the voting patterns of rural states are, the, the Democrats would have to start picking up states in like the Midwest and the big sky for there ever to be a scenario in which there, this, this kind of change, the Democrats could win the electoral college without winning the popular vote. say the interstate compact is like in effect for like a future election how do you think i mean just going back to like the whole theme of just partisan i feel like that would be like a main point of contention like in the lead up to the election maybe one of the candidates would be oh this is an unfair election or something like that you feel like that would also it would become just another political talking point basically like yeah yeah no i I agree i i think the biggest thing you'd hear is that, well, so I spoke with Bradley Smith, who's a professor at Catholic University in, in Cleveland. And he said one of the, part of the value he sees in the Electoral College is that it forces candidates to win states. So because the, the classic Electoral College argument that it forces candidates to focus on small states doesn't really bear out. Um, it's not really true. You know, if you look at where campaign visits are, it's it's true that they don't really go to like, California, New York, or until recently, Texas. But they also don't go to, you know, Montana, Wyoming, or Idaho either. They're yeah. fo- focused on a couple of select swing states. But those swing states generally have a, if you look at Ohio, for example, Ohio has a number of pretty large urban areas, Columbus, Cleveland, Akron, Dayton, uh, Cincinnati, but also as, you know, kind of in more industrial or more, more rural areas. The same thing goes for Florida, you know, Miami, Tampa, you know, uh, all of Dade and like Orlando are pretty urban but once you get up north there's like different types of people there's more rural communities so it forces campaigns to appeal to on a micro level 
what's seen to represent the whole country because you have kind of more rural voters with rural sensibilities and urban voters with urban sensibilities. But the, the concern would be, and I think the, the, the jab at the uh, popular vote would be campaigns are just going to jet between New York, LA, San Francisco, and Chicago and, and just target big city voters and concerns of more rural voters might be left behind. I personally, I'm not so sure about that, but that's probably what you'd hear from kind of dissenting campaigns or for whatever party would be, uh, whoever the Republican nominee is for it to go into effect. I wanted to just mention, it isn't really a question, but so this episode is going to drop on Monday and then obviously the elections like the next day, right? right? So whenever like a big, like huge event happens and you can, you look back to before it happened and you were like, oh, I was so naive then. I didn't know that this big thing was going to happen. That's my mindset right now. We're about to enter just a cluster of, I, I can't say the word I want to say, but no, I know. it's, <laughs> I understand. yeah. So I, do you want to say anything to look back on and be like, you get what I'm saying? <laughs> right. I, and I, I I don't want to make any absolute statements on the likelihood of this thing because there's, it's entirely possible that it, it, it flops, you know, they don't get the required votes or it gets shot down in, in one of the chambers of Congress or it gets shut down by the Supreme court. So the, the, it's not exactly a layup, you know, there are a lot of hurdles, but I, I think it's closer to happening than people give it credit for. And I, I think at least embracing it kind of starts a, nas- a popular vote kind of dialogue in this country. You know, I, I think people kind of see the Electoral College and they're like, oh, well, this sucks, but it is what it is. But I think people who would, who would uh, advocate against kind of the Electoral College system, there's a pretty viable alternative that's, you know, not there yet, but it's, it, it's pretty close for a movement that only started 15 years ago. So it's kind of on the, I, I think it's on the precipice of something really interesting. And it, it, I think it should draw the attention of people who really advocate for, for a change to the current system. Agreed. Uh, I think that's about it. But if you want to, if you have any last message or any last uh, takeaways from the article you'd like to share or you'd like to plug social media, anything like that, you can go ahead. Um, I mean, if you have any interest in soccer or women's basketball at UF, uh, it's largely what I do. I'm going to try to, you know, be covering a little, do a little more hybrid reporting, uh, focus on some news stuff. So, um, DA Walsh underscore UF on Twitter, if you want to check me out. Thank you guys for listening. You know, I really appreciate your time. Awesome. And yeah, thank you again for coming on. This has been the news section of the podcast. I've been your host, Thomas Holton. If you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can at Thomas underscore underscore Holton. We appreciate everyone for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to The Alligator Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter at The Alligator, as well as find all of our latest stories at alligator.org.